0: Welcome to what else my guest this time is David Rubin David and I have been friends for most of my life I always enjoy talking with him listening to him and learning from him and I think you will too please enjoy David Rubin on what else all right welcome to what else this is David Rubin talking with me. I'm super excited that we're finally getting to do this. I know. How many times did we email before we finally locked it Uh, in? More than twice. I'm sorry. That's my fault. No, it's not true. It's not true. But it's great to have you here. Thank you. Um, So as you know, as a sometime, what else listener? It's kind of a free form thing for us to talk about whatever. But we were just talking about um, your exploration of maybe starting a podcast Based on your business, which not you tell people what you do?
1: Sure. Well, so I'm my primary job is I'm a physician. I take care of patients at the University of Chicago. But when you work at a place like the University of Chicago, you do more than that. Um, mm-hmm. Part of what we do and what I'm passionate about is teaching and doing research to advance science. And uh, four years ago, I became chief of the GI division. So now I have a, a fairly significant administrative role. But on the side, because I had so much free time. <laughs> Um, A very good friend of mine and I uh, co-founded a nonprofit for medical education, and we've been doing that now for, uh, unbelievably, um, almost nine years. Wow. And that has been uh, quite a great venture for us to have some freedom to do what we think is best for some of our colleagues in terms of teaching and now patients.
0: And is that when you say the nonprofit is for uh, education? Is that like outside of the University of Chicago Medical School's curriculum? Is it kind of an independent?
1: Right. So it is completely independent and
0: Mm -hmm. uh,
1: it's done on my own time. And there's a firewall between what I do all day long and what I do representing the university and what I do for our nonprofit, which is called Cornerstones Health. Uh Actually, my wife came up with the name Cornerstones because we were looking for something architectural that would describe the foundation of mm-hmm. a building as what we thought our company was
0: going to be all about, and that 's where it came from so that 's great and The sort of audience for your foundation stuff is. Is
1: who? It's been primarily doctors. Okay. So the, the issue was that, uh, so my partner, so I should give her appropriate credit, is uh, a pediatric gastroenterologist named Marla Dubinsky. Marla and I had been friends since we were fellows, uh-huh. and she was in Los Angeles for most of her career, and now she's in New York. But we both were complaining about how we thought that the education provided to doctors was much too driven by pharmaceutical interests mm-hmm. and regulatory and things that are not going to have the greatest impact on what doctors really want, which is, what do I do tomorrow with this new therapy? Or how do I fix my patient who's not getting better? And we figured we could do it better. And we could do it more creative. And we could get rid of the middle... People who were in the middle of all this edu- education making a lot of money uh, without much creativity or impact. And so that's what drove us to do this. The idea behind making it nonprofit was to add credibility and also because a lot of our colleagues who worked at academic institutions like we did had uh, restrictions on their ability to speak if there was um, for profit or if it was run by pharmaceutical industry. Sure. So by creating a non-profit that was driven by two doctors, um, we could make this something that everyone could participate in and um, we could get more funds to do what we want to do. And it's been really successful. It's now global. So we're all over the world. Wow. We've done programs in Australia, New Zealand, um, China, India, Korea, Singapore, Thailand, and then the U.K., the U.S., Canada. I mean, it's really been quite a ride, and I'm very proud of that. So that's a completely separate part of what I do, but it's been really great for us. It's been great for our colleagues who get to participate, and
0: um, hopefully it'll keep going. Yeah. Yeah. Is it, how is it, has it turned out differently than what you expected when you started it? It's an interesting question
1: because um, I think if you asked my partner— Marla would say, yeah, and I would say no. This is exactly <laughs> what I wanted it to be, and I have some other plans that we're going to put in place to keep it on on track for that vision. Um, but what I think has been most gratifying is that people don't even know that it's that I'm part of Cornerstones now. It has its own brand recognition, and I, I love that right. because that's what I really wanted was for this to become its own entity and sort of gain its own momentum and to really impact the way people think about taking care of patients and um, and of course obviously affecting the way patients get taken care of
0: Mm -hmm. yeah in general I mean I'm sure that's a huge topic to unpack but in general like what are your observations about I mean the sort of modern American healthcare system like how patients are taken care of or what the main areas of of, if you were going to make a change in that that you would make
1: well, I think about it a lot because um, any person who's taking care of patients now is every single day confronted with the realities of cost and limitations to access. Mm-hmm. Even people with good insurance may not be able to get the treatment or the test that you want to order. And there is a huge uh, disparity between those who can get certain things and those who cannot. Uh, and very apparent and has completely transformed many of our interactions in a negative way has been the presence of an insurance company or a third-party payer who sits in the room with you virtually while you're talking to a patient. Mm-hmm. It has changed the dynamic to the point where you have a conversation with a patient about something that's serious, their health, and what you need to do to address it, whether it's diagnose it or treat it or fix it. And then the conversation is always curtailed or should be ending with, let's see if we can get it covered. And that's not what happened before. There's always been a third party that pays or that insurance exists to help people get things that they may need that they don't anticipate. But uh, the impact of payers now is profound and intrusive. But I, as much as that sounds like I'm completely anti-payer, they, they have a purpose. They exist for a reason. Sure. And the healthcare system has become way too expensive. It's crazy. So I was in China giving some lectures and went on a tour of one of their major hospitals. And an MRI there is just a few hundred dollars U.S. Um, or less. An MRI at the University of Chicago of the abdomen and pelvis is $12,000. That's what the charge is. The What insurance company negotiates and pays is some opaque number that nobody ever knows. And then the patient gets some bill at the end that hopefully will be affordable. And mm-hmm. it's just it's a perverse, <clears throat> distorted, immensely unnecessarily complicated problem. And uh, I rail against that. I'm, I'm pretty active in social media on Twitter is mostly my... Um, medium of choice, and I, what I'm most disturbed by has been um, the lack of common sense in some of the decisions that occur. I get it that private insurers would go out of business if they approved everything everyone wants because health has become too expensive. So I'm not opposed to common business practice mm-hmm. because they are private insurers and they have customers or members or whatever they want to call them. But what I can't stand is that they're making quarterly profits in the millions or hundreds of millions of dollars for their shareholders, yet you can't get someone on the phone to give you a straight answer. You An urgent appeal when a patient really needs something mm-hmm. takes weeks to months. Mm-hmm. Urgent. Um, paperwork is commonly lost. You know, things that I think are inexcusable when there's enough money in the system to provide optimal customer experience. So those are the things that I think are intolerable, and that's what I've been screaming about in some of my professional roles Um, without complaining all the time that the therapy that I think is best for my patient is going to be denied. That's a whole other argument. That's more medical and science-based, but it's Mm cost-driven. The thing about, like, you can't get someone on the phone when you need them or you can't get an expert to have a real communication about why your patient needs this instead of that. Um, I think is just uh, egregious and unregulated and needs change. Yeah.
0: seems, right, separating out the sort of administrative bungle part of it from the debate about the validity of a test, those are two different things. Yeah. I mean, you can't even get the person on the phone to have the debate.
1: So I, I use Twitter... Very carefully in these arguments because I will tag the insurance company, and many of them are now following me as well. So I'm no—I know who my audience is, <laughs> and uh, I have one patient who had been on a stable therapy in remission. So I take care of people with Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, these immune conditions of the bowel, mm-hmm. and that's what the University of Chicago is very well known for. And I had a patient who happens to be a healthcare worker, so she knew her insurance, she knew the system. Uh, She changed jobs but had the same coverage. Um, And when she changed jobs and got a new ID, uh, health ID, she could not get approved for the medicine that had kept her in remission for three years. And she was stable, doing well. We had to appeal something like four or five times. The paperwork was lost multiple different times. We spoke to someone different on the phone every time we called. And it ultimately took us, um, I think, four appeals, 79 days, and 15 tweets before I got her medicine approved. Um, and that, I think, is emblematic of what we we're doing every day. And I, I feel horribly when I think about patients who don't have an advocate or who don't, aren't sophisticated enough to know what they should be getting, uh, who are just lost in the system because it can swallow you up and run <laughs>
0: over you it's a terrible thing sorry I mixed my metaphors (laughs) no one's keeping score on that yeah I have I've had the same thought many times that you just think I'm you know like a reasonably well versed in administrative BS and stuff from work and life experiences and stuff and I think about people who have A just aren't feeling well going into a situation where you have to struggle through that stuff B what if they don't speak the language that well what if they're not used to this kind of they don't operate in some kind of business environment where there's administrative nonsense and stuff and they're not used to navigating that it'd just be so overwhelming
1: i think physicians role in society when you get down to it and what i really believe we should be as a profession embracing and screaming from the mountaintops about has been that we're here to protect people and to help them. And that includes standing up for the vulnerable. And when people are sick, they're vulnerable. Mm -hmm. When people are poor in this country, they're especially vulnerable. When people don't have the same educational level, they're vulnerable. And um, call me whatever you will from a political point of view, but I'll tell you that our society could do better. And I gave a, a lecture yesterday morning in Seattle and it was a scientific lecture on advances we're making to try and cure ulcerative colitis. But the best question I got from the audience at the end of the lecture was from one of the senior doctors there who said, you know, these new treatments you're talking about are great, but how do I get my patients the therapies when the insurance companies won't let us use them? And how do we change the status quo? And I said, I agree completely with you. And it, the first thing we need to do is to start with science because that's what we're good at mm-hmm. and when we need to communicate it. And what I mean is we need to continue to show that these therapies provide a better outcome that is not only obvious, the patient feels better, has a better quality of life, is cured, whatever it's going to be, and that that's a cost-effective strategy. Right. Because that's the only thing that a business person who runs an insurance company will buy into.
0: And I get it. Yeah. So you kind of touched on something there that I want to ask you about, which is um, your sort of personal and emotional orientation and response to treating patients. Um, I guess I probably have a few questions bundled up in this, but uh, I guess we could start with um, how do you think your – personal sort of empathy has shaped or been shaped by your experiences over the years treating patients? It's a very
1: complicated question. It is, I know. Sorry. <laughs> uh, no, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a commonly discussed topic. Um, when I was a fourth-year medical student, I had an elective with one of the faculty, and it was a reading elective, and I could pick the topic and I'm not sure how we settled on this, if I came up with it, but more likely he may have suggested it. But the topic was, can you teach empathy? In other words, can medical students learn to uh-huh. act empathic or feel empathy? And those are not necessarily the same things, right. obviously. Um, and I, I, it's complex in the sense that the longer I do what I do, the more I have insight into it. So it becomes something where... Even the most innately empathic individual for whatever personality traits they have or whomever their parents may have been um, goes through transitions as they experience illness. And if they're really in it to take care of people, they'll be transformed over time. So there is something to be said for wisdom in our profession and humility. And so I wrote a piece recently that um, came out just this month, actually, um, on uh, what taking care of patients with inflammatory bowel disease has taught me about being a doctor. And one of the things that resonated with some of the patients who read it and others who saw it was that I said, the longer I do what I do, the more humble I become in the face of these diseases. Because you can know all the statistics, you can know what treatment to provide, but um, once you've mastered some of the fund of knowledge and so I've seen X number of patients and therefore I feel like I've seen it all or enough of it to know what I'm doing, that's when you get thrown a curveball. That's when you're going to get the patient who doesn't follow the rules. Mm-hmm. And uh, by doing this as long as I have and by being invested in it the way I and my colleagues have been You can step back from struggling to remember what's the dose of that medicine or what am I supposed to do here to actually having the emotional capacity to be there for somebody and to understand what it must be like when a father calls you about his daughter being sick and needing to go back to the ER as opposed to they're disrupting my day and what am I going to treat her with next and I don't know what to do, which gets in the way of actually being a human being. One of my most important mentors uh, was a legend in GI. His name was Joseph Kirzner. Kirzner actually um, was at the University of Chicago. He took care of my grandmother in the 1950s. And there's a long story behind that, but I'll get to the point, which is that when I um, decided to specialize in gastroenterology and, and had the opportunity to work with Kirzner, he was a legend in the world of inflammatory bowel, which is where I ended up spending my career but I didn't really learn much about inflammatory bowel disease from him. I learned a couple of things. What I learned from him and what continues to resonate now, he died in 2012, so six years later, was how to take care of people, his uh, approach to the individual and the way he communicated. And those types of things, which we aspire to as physicians, um, he emulated, and it was a great opportunity to watch and learn from him. But the best part about it, from my perspective, was that I didn't know I was learning it from him at the time. I was thinking, like, what is he doing? Because he would have the fellow go in and see the patient and come out and present the patient. And we would talk about it in the workroom. And we'd go back in, and he would synthesize it. And he would look to the person and tell them what they had. He'd be very demonstrative, a little bit paternalistic, maybe more than we are these days. But when he examined them, I used to think that he was just pretending to touch their abdomen because he didn't do any of the things we were taught about how to touch, examine the abdomen properly and feel for the liver and whatever. Mm -hmm. He would just sort of rub his hand on their belly, and I was like, ugh, what's he doing? And now, all these years later, he died in 2012 at the age of 102. So I was working with him at the end of his career. All these years later, I get it. You know, um, first of all, uh, synthesizing what's going on and coming back in and providing somebody with an actual plan as opposed to lots more uncertainty is really important. Mm-hmm. You, it doesn't mean you have to know everything. Certainly, Acknowledging you don't know certain things is fine. But giving a plan and some direction, people need a quarterback. Yeah, That was his term, the quarterback. He loved sports. And the second part is that actually, the more I've done it, the more I realize that Not only does touching the abdomen have a real role, like the laying on of hands is a term in medicine because it connects you to the patient. You can actually examine somebody much better when you're gentle than when you're, like, smashing on their belly to try to figure out how big their liver might be or where Mm -hmm. they're having pain. And um, it took me all these years to realize that. And that's what he taught me. And so that's... I feel like I'm off track a little bit. But in the sense of, like... That's the wisdom that comes from doing this all these years. And all I can do now is try to verbalize it to my trainees so that they at least have it somewhere in their brain so that when they get to that level where they've mastered some of the fund of knowledge information, they can actually contextualize some of these other things that will make them that much better as a care provider. So getting back to some of the core of what we talked about, I feel for people and um, I understand. Like if you are sick and you need a treatment that may be life-saving or Mm life-altering, and you don't know who to turn to or whether it's going to be paid for or how you're going to make ends meet, Um, you need somebody to fight for you. And my colleagues, and I, frankly, don't always have the bandwidth to do that anymore because we got so many other things we have to take care of. So there's a real crisis in medicine these days across many different dimensions. And um, I always try to take the optimistic point of view, which is it's an opportunity, Mm -hmm. right? The electronic medical record, which all this typing and looking at a computer while you're with a patient has uh, certainly come between us and patients in many situations. That doesn't mean that it can't be a tool to make things better if you think about how to do it. One of my other mentors in a different field who I've worked with, uh, when he talks about the history of medicine, he says that when Medicare was created as this government safe net for elderly and for certain other populations of our, of our country, doctors railed against it and said, this is going to be the end of medicine. That was when Medicare came about. You know, Now people talk about Medicare for all. And um, I try to think the same thing. Like at, at some point in a few years, I hope, we'll look back on this era as a transition because we're looking at an opportunity to do things better. Um but it's definitely a challenge. Let
0: me ask you about that <clears throat> the the lessons you learned. So it sounds like Kirstener never said to you, watch what I'm gonna do here. No. Or is explained um to you this is a this is the way you wanna approach a patient, or this is how you should talk to people, or that kind of stuff, right? That you, being a smart and sensitive person and an and observant person, took that in and processed it and paid attention to the behavior that was modeled for you. But I, I didn't know it at the time, and he didn't say it at the time. It's interesting. Do you think he, you think he knew, like, this is what I'm going to teach this guy, but I'm going to teach it to him by – like, do you think it would have been effective if he had said, listen, David, here's the deal go in there, make sure you touch the person, be gentle, be mellow. Like, Would that have worked or would it have worked as well? I mean, I know it's hard to know.
1: Well, it's this issue of um, the empty vessel. Like, was I open to learning this and would it have made a difference if he had been more concrete about it? I observed it. I actually thought it was not that helpful or important and I didn't Get Like, I just thought people, because he was in his 90s when I was working with him, amazingly, and was famous, I thought that that's what it really was. Mm -hmm. And it probably was a little bit of that, you know, when the gray-haired doctor walks in and he's famous and you've come from a long way and you've waited months to see him, um, that might be part of it, sure. But I didn't appreciate this other stuff until later. In fact, the first time that I actually... um, really realized what he had taught me was when I wrote his eulogy.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I spoke at his funeral. Um, and I talked about how I, I learned that from him, and then I realized it. So now, fast forward, I actually do say that to patients and to, to fellows and trainees. Yeah. I explain to them some of what we're trying to do to make them feel better and why it's important. Um, and it's an interesting thing. Um I feel like I should probably write something to teach people about this, but I don't necessarily know that when we learn clinical skills as medical students, you got to learn the fundamentals before you can get to, like, how do you actually feel the abdomen in a way that makes sense and also makes the patient feel better, or how do you pay attention to the patient properly? You know, it comes up more. Communication is so important. But it's so hard. Uh, One of our other teachers in medical school used to talk about being asked to walk up to a fire hydrant and drink. You know, when you're in medical school, it's crazy
0: what you have to absorb. Yeah. And I'm sure, like most things, there's a sequence to... How things should be learned to be most effective and to stick into is building blocks, right? You, right. Want to, you need to start with certain things.
1: Well, for about twelve years or eleven years, I taught, um, I co-taught the course called the doctor-patient relationship. It's actually in many medical schools that class is called medical ethics. Right. Um, but the person who created that uh, course and built the ethics center at the University of Chicago is a really fabulous person named Mark Siegler. And Dr. Siegler um, believed that the core of medical ethics was the relationship between the doctor and the patient. And many other ethics courses are rooted in philosophy. And that was sort of part of this, but it was a small part. Mm -hmm. It was much more about the primacy of this relationship you have between somebody who's sick and being a physician or a caregiver. And um, what I loved about teaching that class to the first-year medical students is that the first-year medical students still, for the most part, think like patients. They don't think like doctors. Mm -hmm. And you're teaching them some fundamental things, which they might process in a way that I hope comes back to them at another time. But they're not yet thinking like physicians. So the teaching assistants for that class are the fourth-year medical students, who have now gone through three years of medical school. And they have a completely different perspective because they've been on their clinical rotations. They've been on the wards taking care of people. They've seen it up close and personal. And I always made a point during the first lecture of the course that you guys are thinking like patients, which is completely appropriate. We're going to help you transition into thinking more like doctors in mm-hmm. terms of some of the issues you face. And the, the teaching assistants are going to be these fourth-year students who have been through some of this and can provide you with some perspective And it's an amazing transition people go through in a few years. But, you know, the end of medical school is somewhat arbitrary. You know, why is it four years and not 40? (laughs) Because, frankly, you just keep learning. And I keep every day there's something new. It's one of the beauties of medicine, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh,
0: You mentioned before something about um, you mentioned in passing having an optimistic approach to this situation of um, patient care and stuff. Do you, are you an optimistic person in general, like across facets of your life?
1: Yes. Yeah. I think it's a good way to go. I'm a glasses half full person.
0: Is that is that a conscious approach, or is it just your nature? Do you think?
1: Um, it's my nature. I think. I don't. I, I don't feel that there's any kind of uh, fakeness about that. Right. Yeah.
0: Or any or effort really.
1: Not. Not usually. Uh, I mean, hard. we've all had our sure. difficult of times, course. right? Um, and there's been lots of stress in different parts of training and yep. professional development and personal lives. But in general, um, I would much rather, I say this not infrequently, I would much rather assume that somebody's going to do the right thing or is going to make things right and be proven wrong than to be cynical all the time. And when I'm speaking to patients, I think it's an essential feature of being a physician, especially, or maybe not especially, but in my profession, people diagnosed with Crohn's and colitis are young often, mm-hmm. and they're facing an incurable condition that is chronic. You need to put this in perspective in a way that's going to be manageable for them. I mean, Part of what we do is to give them hope for the future, and I have to believe that. And I do believe it. When mm-hmm. I tell patients, we're going to fix you, I use that term sort of loosely, but that's the point, and we can make this better, and I have a good plan, so don't worry, they need to hear that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, it may be true that if you look at the clinical trials, the benefit of the drug over placebo was only 7%. But in this patient, I know this is going to work. And I tell them that, and you know what? Don't worry, because if it doesn't, we have a plan B. But that's what people need to hear. Sure. How can they function if they don't see somebody who can provide some level of that? That doesn't mean that I sugarcoat everything either. They also want to know the truth. Mm -hmm. Um, And if it's time for them to have surgery, then this is the time to have surgery. And we'll tell them why. And we'll tell them what to expect afterwards and why it's going to be better. But that's, I think, it's necessary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's my general approach.
0: That seems really good. Uh, Would it? What part of dealing with patients is the most stressful for you? Like, like, if you're, I assume occasionally you're up at night, like, with your mind going, thinking about some stuff. Like, what's Occasional. the category of stuff? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. What's the category of stuff that is there? Is there a category of stuff that, that you know that well is most from a patient for you? from my The
1: doctor part of what I do? Sure. Um, We can talk about all parts. Well, yeah. I mean, it keeps me awake. Why haven't we cured these conditions yet? Like, what am I missing? Mm -hmm. Why is this patient not responding? Mm -hmm. Or I have some perspective on the fact that we're calling things Crohn's, but it's probably 40 different diseases that we just haven't separated out yet so we can be more precise And what's taking so long. Um,
0: Is that kind of – is that like a – General thing, or is it like with a specific patient that you're like? Yeah,
1: so, but there are patients who keep me awake. Yeah. Right? So there's patients who keep me awake because I'm worried about them or because I know they're not responding to therapy as expected and I can anticipate what's likely to happen to them over the near term. Um, And then there are the patients uh, that are keeping me awake because I feel that I didn't uh, manage them the way I should have or I didn't have enough time. Or I lay down, and finally there's silence around me for the first time all day. And I think, you know, shit, I forgot to call that one person. I really needed to call him today, and it was important. That happens to all of us. But um, when there's a patient waiting for your call, I might have had 100 people to talk to in a day, and they were waiting for my call or my team to call them. And so that weighs heavily on you. Mm -hmm. And uh, it can definitely lead to sleepless nights. And so you just try to do it better the next time. Mm-hmm. It, it, there's a lot of that um, we're not perfect I've learned the most from the mistakes I've made
0: yeah I would imagine that that stuff requires patience on your part right in it I w- I'm interested in how you f- think your sense of patience with a CE has uh, evolved over time like because I, w- I would imagine there's sort of an urge to be like I want to fix this and I want to fix it now or I want to solve this thing?
1: Well, I think it's urgent that we fix the problems that we can, and I think that we could make more progress in our field if we just were a little more organized about it, and I think we're getting there. Um, but uh, you do need to have patience with the system the way it is, mm-hmm. and ceaseless striving against a system that doesn't bend is not healthy for anybody around you, and it's not healthy for you. And Mm -hmm. part of what I do is not just me, of course. I work with an incredible team. And I got to manage my team. And being their leader and demonstrating some consistency when I'm able to um, so that we can ride over the rough patches together is really important. And with patience, (laughs) T-S, demonstrating some uh, shared expectation of it's going to take a little time and here's what I want. To make sure we're both on the same page about is key and um, with trainees because a big part of what I do is teach Mm -hmm. residents and medical students and fellows and um, there are certain things that it's okay that they're learning and that they're going to pick up and there's some things that are not okay Mm -hmm. and I, I try to make it very clear what's not okay Mm -hmm. In other words, when they see a patient, they're responsible for making sure the follow-up is going to happen. It's not okay that I have a 30-year-old in the hospital right now who had a biopsy yesterday morning. This is true. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're waiting for the results, and my team, who was taking care of him and the surgeons, didn't try to expedite it. They told him the, the results might be back by Tuesday. So he had the biopsy on a Friday. I know it's a holiday weekend, but I don't care. Somebody should have been, like, carrying it to the pathology lab and saying there's a 30-year-old who has a baby at home and a wife and wants to know if he has something bad. We need these results. Right. So I'm flying home from Seattle texting my pathologist, can you help me, and trying to do this. So there's an example where I'm not patient because my team didn't do what I think they should on behalf of a patient. Right.
0: Um,
1: it goes back and forth.
0: So in that situation, do you talk to your team afterwards and say, like, hey, listen, this should have gone better and here's what I think should have happened here. So let's talk about that. Yeah,
1: providing feedback mm-hmm. is part of life, yep. um, but concrete feedback so that it's not just, you know, Ruben's being emotional <laughs> is important. Right. Um, and that's something that we teach and we have to learn mm-hmm. and we have to do better at. Mm-hmm. And part of giving good feedback is having given expectations up front. Mm-hmm. So... I'm sure that my fellow and the colleague of mine who's on service right now are busy because they've got eight other patients to take care of, and who knows what else is going on. Um, So if I don't tell them ahead of time that, listen, I expect that you're going to move this along because it's a holiday weekend and I don't want to delay, then it's possibly unreasonable that I would then call up and say, how come you didn't do all this? Sure on the other hand people pretty much know the expectations when you're taking care of patients with these problems right. and i would expect that that's sort of fundamental mm-hmm. it's a pretty specific
0: example are you pretty good at are you good at giving people direct feedback are you, you might have to ask like the them bad news or, yeah right <laughs> well i guess on on your that's fair on your side do you feel like you are able to give it or are you reluctant to give it or are you fine with telling people the straight talk, even if you know it's going to bum them out a little bit, at least temporarily?
1: Um, I've gotten better at it. Mm -hmm. I think part of it is um, avoiding confrontation, feeling like, well, I didn't do a good enough job teaching, so the feedback is partially, the negative feedback is my fault or my responsibility. I think everyone could do a better job. I, I also happen to have come to believe that we don't compliment people enough. We don't give. We don't give pats on the back enough, you know. Right before we started recording today, you saw my nurse called me on a Saturday, right. um, which is amazing. She's incredible, and I try to remind her of that as often as I can, so that not just so that she doesn't quit, <laughs> but because she deserves it. And I don't think we do that enough in life. And I try to role model that. That's something you model more, I think. Mm-hmm. Then, um, but so then when you, if you're giving them positive reinforcement for things well done giving a feedback that involves criticism or letting people learn from their mistakes is much easier mm-hmm. because it's in the context of the whole picture.
0: Sure. Um, how do you think having your boys has cross pollinated with your approaches to staff, patients,
1: so I have two sons, uh, Danny's 19 is at the time of this recording, yep. Michael's 17. Um, becoming a father was one of the most important things that happened to me, no doubt. I remember, obviously, as anybody might, that day, um, and typical of my personality, I was thinking already about, like, how am I going to pay for college? <laughs> <laughs> um I think what the what the kids have taught me the most about is uh, individuality, like how individualized each kid is and how amazing it is, their personalities as they developed. Mm-hmm. And as their father, to be patient, it's interesting because sometimes Becky would say to me, you're so calm and nice to your patients on the telephone why don't you do that when you're at home and something falls on the sure. floor and breaks and she has a very good point point. and part of it is of course because I can't behave that way on the phone and frankly she's right I probably shouldn't lose my temper at home ever Right. but we all do and mm-hmm. I've learned from that I think I've learned the importance of of being understanding about those things I hope the kids would say that too Mm-hmm. And being supportive and role modeling and they've grown up with a dad who was working a lot and who when we were in the car would have to tell him to be quiet so I could call a patient back or I could call in a prescription or mm-hmm. and it sort of has you can't separate raising a family from being probably true in other professions, but at least from being a physician. So they've seen that. Neither of them are going into medicine, maybe that's this. <laughs> They're good kids. That's great. Young men. They're both yeah, taller than right. I am now. Crazy. It is. I'm proud of them, though. They're, they continue to amaze. It's a really remarkable thing.
0: I'm sure it's...
1: And my friends tell me, um, some of my older colleagues and friends say that, you know, every age uh, of your children has something different about it that you will learn or that you'll see or that you'll experience. And uh, when they get to be adults, which they are, is when you really can get to know them. Right. And that's something that I've really enjoyed and I'm looking forward to
0: more of. Yeah, I'm sure it's rewarding in its own way at each at each stage. Yeah,
1: but it's true that one of my other colleagues has said to me a long time ago, and I'm sure he didn't make it up, but you're only as happy as your least favorite, your least favorite, your least happy child. In other words, yeah. if, if one of your kids is not happy or things are going rough for, for him, sure, you're going to feel it. And that's obviously true.
0: Yeah. Um, tell me about what you like to do. How do you relax if you want to decompress from? Well, we
1: didn't even touch on, like, how you and I know each other. We can
0: we we'll talk about that, too. You want to talk about that?
1: Well, no. I'm going to just start by saying that because I still use music to relax. Okay. Um, and... Uh, I'm, I thank God that I have that um, aspect of my life and can reflect on it. And so I'm sure many people would use the, would say the same thing, but music helps a lot. Mm-hmm. Not just listening, but still playing occasionally, um, which is great. And not a, I don't do it enough. It's on my list for the year. It's a perpetual list, but it's still there.
0: We'll be playing together at the end of the year for sure. Yeah. Um, What do you like to listen to these days?
1: It's a mix. It depends on my mood and depends what I'm doing. So I I am one of those folks who listened to music when he was studying Mm because that would help me focus. So if I'm trying to write or I'm working um, on something, I will listen to something that I know well. I can't listen to new things when I'm trying to focus. That makes sense. So then I I flip back to some of the things I like from... You know, the 80s rock um, and some of the horn line things that I love, of course. Mm -hmm. Blood, sweat, and tears, earth, wind, and fire. Yeah, Um, Some of the things we grew up with. Uh, And then I certainly appreciate, um, right now I'm finishing listening to In the Heights. So I listened to Hamilton, um, which my kids loved and I haven't Mm -hmm. seen yet and appreciated it. But then um, actually Becky and... Uh, Michael convinced me I should be listening to In the Heights and hearing Lin-Manuel Miranda's earlier Mm -hmm. stuff. So it's
0: good. It's good. Um, So if I'm doing things that are writing words, I have trouble having music on that has lyrics and stuff because I'll...
1: Yeah, it's interesting because I'm totally a melody person. So there can be lyrics, but I don't process them. Yeah, It's a real brain thing with me because I don't hear the lyrics the way I know my wife does, for instance. Becky's really talented in that regard. She'll hear lyrics one time and she'll know the whole piece. And she remembers the words to every song going back to kindergarten and all of her camp jingles and things she wrote and stuff. She just remembers all of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've never been a lyric person. I'm a melody person.
0: My brother's the same way. He couldn't tell you the words to any song, ever. It's amazing to me. It's definitely a different parts. part of the brain, right? Yeah.
1: So it doesn't distract me as much. Yeah. But I get it. I understand that. I've come to understand that.
0: I was talking about music a little bit. Um, when did you start playing? And what was your first instrument? I started playing trumpet when I was nine. Isn't that okay. when we I did it? Like fourth right, grade. Yeah.
1: Right. I wanted to play trombone because everyone a lot thought the slides were interesting. you Yeah. Know? And my dad said, no, you know, you probably want to play more melodies. And so why don't you try the trumpet? And so I played that all through college uh, into medical school. I played in the – so in, at, U, at you know at U of I. I was right. in the concert band. I was in the marching band for four years, which was an incredible, fun experience. And um, in medical school, I didn't play with any group um, formally but then when i was a resident and when i was chief resident i actually played in the university of chicago symphony a little bit oh, wow. which was okay. great but it was hard for me the timing of it was difficult um and now i still play occasionally but it's mostly for me and to That's great. you know there's the mix between feeling really good about taking my horn out and then feeling really bad about how unforgiving that instrument is in general yeah yeah, yeah. i miss it at times
0: yeah, I believe it.
1: It's still a part of my identity no matter what, mm-hmm. you know, I'm sure. And you guys all had a – I mean, that was our formative years. You know, that's when we developed a lot of our personalities and our friendships and yeah. it was all surrounded, like, music and performance and
0: right. the next great thing. Right, because you and I, for people who are listening, we'll just you and I uh, primarily met through being in high school together and being in the high school band together. Yeah. And then we were in a rock band together. We had a rock band with right. some of our friends. Yeah. Right. And we played in show bands for the theater Did a lot of that. And stuff together. You so played baritone sax, yeah, right? Yeah. And playing it. So playing in all the and then of guitar jazz band, and marching band
1: and singing. I mean, Nick, you're so talented. Well, it's very it's a generous. It's no, Well, you can say that if you want, but I think mean, <laughs> we all knew that about you, and you have always been nice very much a renaissance man
0: (laughs) yeah and then you went you so you played in the marching band at university of illinois which is a big that's a big deal like that's a hard gig to get and that's like a serious time commitment and
1: yeah i was clueless going into college but i knew i loved my horn so i auditioned and uh was in the band for four years and it was an incredible experience i loved it um I had never been part of a a group that had that much impact on audiences and on each other, um, and uh, it was a lot of fun. But it was a lot of work three or four hours a day. On game days, of course, it was all day. Um, but it was great. It was really just incredible. Especially when the team would win occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> Did they Which do that? happen that often? I was going to say, I don't know if I remember. We went to a couple time. bowl games when I was in school. So we went that's to fun. the All American Bowl and the Citrus Bowl. The Citrus Bowl was in Orlando. All
0: right, that's something.
1: Um, but uh, I enjoyed it a lot. I'm still friends with lots of those guys. And they have the alumni band perform at Homecoming. I've done that twice, I haven't able oh, to do it so as cool. often as I want. But um, it's really, it's, it was really a good experience shaped my college experience. Um, both my kids have played musical instruments, although they haven't made it as much a core of their existence, although mm-hmm. it's had an important part of different parts of their life. They both have been more performers on stage, too. Right. Um, but my older son, Danny, now is is working with the football team at the University of Michigan as a student manager. So I'm. it's the closest I got to one of my children doing something that's almost like what I did, in the sense that he's going to be there on game day, and he'll be sure. on the field, and but I'm sure it's gonna be even more intense with him, and I'm happy for him that he's doing that yeah
0: yeah that's cool i I think that have something to really immerse in and dig into seems like a valuable i think so thing for all of us, especially if you can have and obviously your work is immersive and something you're passionate about and into, but it's also nice, I think, for all of us to have like some other thing that it's you can important. go to.
1: And, and I started um, running. So I had aspired to oh, this yeah? um, for a long time. And then uh, four years ago, when I, I had a major transition in my job when I became chief, and I still had to figure out how to do some of these other things, um, my fear was that I was going to lose who I was by becoming this administrative person. And I felt strongly that I needed to take this position, but I also had great fear that it was going to be the end of my academic career, and it was going to be the end of my personal development, and I couldn't have been wrong. more wrong. I mean, I was, mm-hmm. it It was. it stimulated me to make sure I was pursuing what was important to me, so I started running, and I wouldn't say that I'm a runner. I'm not sure what the definition of that might be, but <laughs> in the sense of I found that actually making the time to do that freed up my mind to think about things and be much more effective in the other parts of my life. Especially if I, in in a very typical type A personality way, I pick a topic that I'm going to think about before I go running. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) I've got to work on a new talk I'm going to give, or a lecture, or or a problem that I'm dealing with, uh, and I'm going to make that the goal that I'm going to finish the outline of whatever that might be by the time I'm done going for my run. I love (laughs) it. Uh, Snow music when you're running? Pathology. Oh yeah, no, music is essential to running. Okay. Cuz so if I actually think about running, I sure. hate it. Yes. I totally get that. <laughs> it makes perfect sense hate to it. me. You know the best part about running is finishing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I found about it and I've done so how, like how what time duration will you run for? I get it.
1: Uh between 30 and 60 minutes. Okay. Yeah, not longer.
0: Yeah. I've uh, I've done a little of it in, and I never did growing up or anything until the, maybe five years ago. Um, yeah, but what I found for me is that it's not, it's the same. The first step and the last step are the same. So people are like, oh, it gets better, and you, it never gets better. No. But it doesn't really get that much worse for me either. So right. it's just kind of, that's where I, I sort of get a sense of the thing people talk about where they say, well, it's mental. You just need to make yourself keep going because it, it is you know, at some point, obviously, physically, you're gonna start to get more tired or break down. But for me, for the most part, it's it's the same the whole way through. It's never like never feels good, but I I it's very rare
1: in the years that I've now been trying to do this that I actually get that euphoria. It's much more about like the euphoria for me comes that I did it and I know it's good for me right. and that I. I'm happy that, that I accomplished that for my health and for my own just goal-driven personality. Yep. Um, but uh, And I don't mind doing it. The thing that helped me the most, actually, was not having any expectations for how fast I was going to go or mm-hmm. when I was going to finish. Um, I try to think about how far I'm going to go just so I have a, somewhere to stop. But yeah. I, um, when I decided that it didn't matter that I was going to just start like sprinting, Mm -hmm. or something, then I could actually be fine. Mm -hmm. And that's what made the difference for me.
0: So when you go, are you like, well, I'll run to this... You, you just map it out in your head and be like, "That'll be my run today." Pretty Is much, that kind of how you. So
1: we live it? Uh, down by the University of Chicago right. near the lakefront. So when I go for my run, I'll run over Lake Shore Drive, and then there's this beautiful path along the south side. And I know where all the landmarks are in terms of where the mile markers line up. Yeah. And so I'll decide I'm going to do a three-mile run today or four miles, and then I know exactly where to turn around and come back. Yeah. Right, yeah, because I have to have those goals. Otherwise, and then are
0: you not are you not timing yourself or anything like that? I You're do. Just, I
1: track it, um, okay. but it's not because I say, "Oh, geez, you know, I ran slower today." It's yeah. more just so that I know I did it, and it gets. I keep. I don't know why. Yeah, yeah, it's data. I get it. <laughs> right, it's fun. Right, it makes it. It makes it fun. It I makes think. me feel better, which yeah. is important. So that for whatever different many reasons that that happens, it's good.
0: Yeah, to do that so that's the other thing that I do that helps me relax what are there th- are there things that, like you mentioned having a list for the year right so there are, th- are there things that you want to do that you're feel like I'm just haven't had the time to do but like you know there's stuff you're not getting to yeah I'm
1: a list person yeah um, but I also uh, sometimes I'm in denial about how much I need to do so if creating the list actually makes it more real Right. In terms of sort of things that I aspire to do um, or that I feel compelled to work on at some point, I would like to write a book for patients. Um, and I think having – if I had done it 10 years ago, it would be – it might be of interest, but it wouldn't be nearly the kind of book I would write now, which is a nice thing. Yeah. So it gives me an excuse that I procrastinated. <laughs> exactly. justifies. It's that. better now. Yes. All right but uh i think when you put I'd it off a couple more years <laughs> it's well, really
0: good
1: you know um but i also can't be in denial about like you going i have to carve out time if i'm actually going to do that sure that's important i um i don't plan to stay in this job that i have now until it gets boring um some people there's no term limits on being a chief in at the university in my role And I'd like to think ahead to where I'm going to go next. So some Mm -hmm. professional development is important. I'm signing up for a leadership course, and I'm just trying to think ahead to, you know, I love my patients. That's so core to my identity that Mm -hmm. it's hard for me to imagine a position I would take in the future that won't have that. On the other hand, I do want to think about um, what's the next step to having more of an impact um, on people's health or on society Mm -hmm. and uh, we're at that point in our lives where we could be the most productive you know we have the experience under our belt we know the right people we might have some freedom in terms of thinking about what we need to do next that we should be able to do that and so i keep telling my friends this usually in bars (laughs) that this is our time we got to figure what are we going to do now what are we going to do next yeah And uh, sometimes they walk away and go order another beer. And sometimes I get into a little conversation with people. And um, some of my colleagues have different perspectives on this. But I do feel strongly about that. So I don't anticipate I'm going to stay in this position. Mm -hmm. But I don't know what the next one
0: would look like. So that's on my list. It's interesting. Yeah, I think this – I sort of think the same thing. I think to myself, like, I guess there's sort of – there's the things you mentioned, which is – Listen, you have some experience. You presumably have learned some lessons, invariably the hard way, but have learned them and can apply them to whatever endeavor. And then I also think to myself, right, when I was 25, I was going to live forever. I had all the time. I was both in a hurry but also had all the time in the world. And now I see, like, the window. I'm like, if I don't start doing something now – I'm not going to start doing it when I'm 62. I mean, maybe I will, but I'm probably not. I feel like this is sort of the peak. This is the window to get going.
1: Yeah. Um. I agree with you. I certainly see that. It has more an impact on me now. It's an interesting thing when you, as a physician, when you see people uh, in the medical setting for a living, especially with whatever my particular job has been, Um, there have been these very concrete moments in time when I was older than some of the patients I was seeing, when I was the same age as the parents of the patients I'm seeing, and now when I'm older than the parents of the patients I'm seeing. And when you stop for a minute to actually think about it, it makes sense and whatever, but mm-hmm. it can be a little sobering because <laughs> um, i don't if you don't think about it when I just go into the room, I still continue to think that well, that's the parent, so the parent must be older than me, of course, yes, right than I am <clears throat> um, <laughs> but that also can be a motivator, like okay, do something if you mm-hmm. feel like your time on earth is going to be limited, mm-hmm. then go do something. you know there's the line in Hamilton. The musical, which I referenced already, Mm -hmm. where uh, it says that uh, Alexander Hamilton was writing like he was running out of time. And recently I said to my wife that I felt like there's times that I'm doing that where I feel like some urgency to what I'm trying to accomplish. And she said, I've felt that about you since I've known you. I said, Well, I don't necessarily think that's always a good thing. You know, I'd like to feel. Um, I'd like to achieve some satisfaction with what I've accomplished sure. and be able to reflect on it and give myself permission to enjoy it a little bit. But I have this pathology. It's not a good thing. I'm, I'm not saying that it's it. like false hubris. I like honestly believe it's pathologic that I, you know, when I finish one thing, and I got to get on to the next. And, you know, at some point you have to sort of draw some boundaries on the things you've done and understand that you can keep doing the day-to-day grind or you can like step back and think, well, what do I really want to be doing and what's it going to take for me to do that? Mm-hmm. And so that's hard.
0: Yeah. And I think that there's that that balance between satisfaction and complacency, right? You, you don't, does one need to be unhappy to be motivated or can you be happy but also motivated and, and balancing those things I think is tricky for a lot of people?
1: I teach the fellows we we do um a number of years ago when i was the fellowship director i started doing an academic skills retreat for them mm-hmm. and i still speak at it although i don't run it now and um, one of the things that i teach every couple years is time management which is um interesting mm-hmm. this is an example of where i've seen role models
0: yeah but
1: when i read um uh, uh Stephen Covey's book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. The part that resonated with me was the time matrix. So you divide it into what's urgent and not urgent and important and not important. And the urgent important things, which is box one, is where you, can, you can't you can get out of that box because you got to take care of things that are like there's deadline-driven, hard end points. you got to do it. Like a patient who's sick sitting in front of me or a clinic that I have to be at, can't get away from that. Um... But it's actually box three, which is the important, not urgent box that you want to be spending more time in. It's where you're creative. It's where you can think about your future. Mm-hmm. And if you live in box one too much, which is a problem that I've had, then you immediately go to box four as soon as you're out of that environment, which is the not important, not urgent. It's the escapism. Yes, right. Right. I come home and there's so much on my mind that all I want to do is turn on the TV and fall asleep. Mm-hmm. And that's not a good way to live. If you keep that up too long, then you can get to burnout. And burnout's a huge topic in medicine now. It's a huge topic sure. in many things. But box three is what I love. Like a, a good cup of coffee without anything else on my mind where I'm going to sit down and write or think about life or go for a run. Like get, being in box three is the healthiest place to be. Sure. So that's where we should be. Spend more time. Mm-hmm. You, so, I, again, I contextualize it so that I can try to figure it out. <laughs> I'm so type A. It's, un, it's unfortunate.
0: But it cuts, break most things, right? It, it's got pluses and minuses. Of course. Right. I mean, it, Well,
1: I, I tell patients. Some of the
0: results of your type A-ness. Right? You
1: want know. a doctor who is obsessive-compulsive, right? Mm-hmm. You don't want a doctor who's, like, not paying attention. You need that. Sure. So, you've got to figure out somebody who has some insight into their own personality traits, but also has enough drive and attention to detail that it's mm-hmm. going to make a difference. Mm-hmm. But those are your demons too.
0: hmm Um. You touched on something that made me wonder: Are you? Do you feel like you're a good decision maker? Like, are you decisive enough?
1: Uh, yes. So as a manager, yes. As a leader, yes. Um, how about as a human? Uh, not as much maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You think you're, do you think you're less decisive? I mean, I've become more confident
1: in some of my decisions, Mm -hmm. Uh, but I think that, um, uh, much of my life I was doing what was needed or expected mm-hmm. and not necessarily what I wanted. Mm-hmm. So my decisions were shaped by that, mm-hmm. and they were not necessarily shaped by more of a drive to do what I What I really at my core understood because mm-hmm. I didn't understand it. Yeah. And that was very recent that I even came to that realization. I get that. So... Um, but it was necessary. So for whatever reason, for as long as I can remember, I wanted to be a doctor. So maybe it's just the Jewish firstborn son thing. Whatever it was, I was going to be a doctor. And
0: do you think that that's because you wanted to fill the role of like what what the best version or whatever of you is supposed to be? Or is it because you just wanted it? It wasn't about me, the best version of me, although
1: I, I always aspired to being the best person of I could be. It was, um, I knew I loved science. I okay. thought that it was admirable to take care of people, even though that's cliche, that was true. And I got positive reinforcement for it. Well, you want to be a doctor, that's a great thing. It's respected in society. Sure. And you'll have a, a good living and whatever that goes with that. I never went through this uh, crisis of, well, what, what am I going to do with my life or how am I going to support a family? Because mm-hmm. in my mind, it was just, I'm going to go from point A to point B. Right. And there were lots of subpoints between that, which were, you know, do okay in college, get into medical school, do okay in medical school, go to a good residency and finish your training there. And then you break it all down, and it's exam to exam to semester to semester to letter of recommendation, to board certification to the next level of training to whatever. Right. And that essentially went on for my whole life.
0: right? There's a path.
1: And then when I became chief, um, that wasn't something I had aspired directly to. Maybe someday I thought I would be, but it, um, the person who had the job before me, another one of my mentors, uh, left to take another position, invited me to come with him, and I didn't. And it wasn't a guarantee I would take over his job. I was vetted, and then I had the position, And suddenly I had a crisis, aside from the anxiety of taking over this huge responsibility that I didn't feel I was prepared to do. I had a crisis of, well, what do I do now? Like, here I am at the pinnacle of what many people would think is your academic career in many different ways, and I didn't know what was next. I didn't know whether I was happy. I didn't know what I was going to do. And it was awful. And I actually couldn't sleep, and I went and started seeing sometimes i call him a life coach but he was a therapist and it was great for me i'd never done that before Mm -hmm. and one of the first things he said to me is like your whole life you've done what you were supposed to do what was expected of you what other people needed you to do Um, when have you done something that you wanted to do and i thought back to some of it well i wanted to be in band Mm -hmm. i loved playing my horn i wanted to you know, it goes back to some of the great memories we have in high school and what I did in college. And then, but there's a lot of other stuff that if I had to do it over again, I don't know if I could get through it. It's really a grind, mm-hmm. it's hard. I say to people, I don't think I would get into medical school now if I had to apply, <laughs> but uh, let alone go through it again. So that was really eye opening. And maybe that's the same thing you were referring to, which is mm-hmm. like we're at this point now where, okay. You know, you're going to go through all of life and then not ever have reflected on what do you really want. So I've been very fortunate to have the opportunities I've had and to get to a point where I'm still young enough to make a difference in my trajectory, let alone the people around me. And I find my true... North has been taking care of people and focusing on that, and that's where I find satisfaction. And there's lots of peripheral things that I could do without and that I choose to do without or can choose to do without. Mm-hmm. So that's okay. That's been really important. That's one of the most major um, changes in my perspective on life, and that just happened four years ago.
0: Which is what, the part about the things that you can do Recognizing
1: that I can life. say no. And life isn't going to come crumbling down around me and my identity isn't going to be um, altered in some irreversible way. Saying no to things I don't want to do and recognizing that it's okay not to want to do some things is important and it's freeing. It's a really good feeling as opposed to just walking around in perpetual guilt. I
0: don't understand why it took us so long to figure that out. Well, why do you think? I don't is that know how we were raised. Is that where we went to school? Uh, I don't know. I wonder if it's something innate, because I think you and I have uh, there's a lot of a bunch of similarities, and I think that uh, I sort of have the same thing of like, well, this is this is what I should do because it's what I can do, or it's because it's the thing that you do if you're a good person, or it's the right. There's a uh, there's a when you were saying that there's a song by this young woman named Courtney Barnett and the song title is Nobody Cares If You Don't Go to the Party. And I think about it pretty frequently um, because it's that thing of like, well, right? It'll be bad if I say no because either someone will be upset or they'll be disappointed or I'll miss out on something or. I should have done this because some magical scorekeeper in the sky or my like personal like internal report card is going to reflect that I ditched this thing right if you can go that if you could jettison all of that it's it's a whole different it's very thing. freeing
1: right yeah um that's uh, I definitely want to listen to the rest of her lyrics well, <laughs> in oh, this whole environment of fear of missing out from social media and sure. seeing things on Facebook, et cetera. I get it um and i when I was younger, uh, you have this pressure as a physician in the academic world. You're invited to give a lecture somewhere. Um, if you say no, you uh, are afraid you're going to fall off their radar and you'll never right. be invited again. Right. Right. This is it. I got to do this. And so there were lots of times in my younger life that I was saying, "I need to do this." The reality is, I didn't need to do it. I needed to do it by some artificial metrics that I was imagining. Um, And some of it um, I wanted to do, but want and need were sort of mixed up and blurred, and I didn't know. And now um, some things I choose to do because I want, fewer things I do because I need. Um, In my job, there are some responsibilities that I need. To take care of, or it's important that I appear at a conference because of that. But um, I've learned that when you say no, they ask you more often in follow up, at least at this level, perhaps. And it doesn't matter that much to me anymore. Um, I don't feel bad at all about it. But it took maturing and living through life. And I don't necessarily know that if I could rewind and do it again, and have and have the, the – know what I know now. I don't necessarily think I would do it differently because the only reason I'm in the place where I am now is
0: because of what I did that. Sure. Yeah, that kind of replaying. I think I used to do that more and think about, well, what if this other path, how would I – and now I'm like it, it, I don't even – Well, I only I'm do lazy, it in a sense. Just can't bother thinking about it.
1: Yeah, well, that, I get it. But I, I try to think about it in the sense of, like, what wisdom can I impart upon my children sure. that I didn't necessarily have?
0: So what do you think the, the – what was the breakthrough? Was there a, was there a, an inflection point where you changed from I'm worrying about need and et cetera to where you became kind of more liberated about this?
1: Well, it was a combination of things. I was in a crisis mode because when I took over this position, it was – there was – The division of GI was struggling. Many people were unsure that I could step up because my Mm -hmm. mentor was the person who left. So am I going to be just like him when I take over? And um, I felt this immense pressure to perform and to succeed and to lead and to help them grow because I care about our enterprise. I care about what we do. I believe in the mission of the institution. And so it was very emotional and very scary. Um, You know, the greatest growth happens when you're pushed into something you're not comfortable with. Um, That was the first part of it. So I had gotten to this crisis. It had to be like the equivalent of rock bottom, but it was not. It was the opposite. (laughs) But it was scary, and I didn't sleep, and it was really horrible, Uh, which is what led me to call my internist and say, I think I need to see somebody. I need some help. Sure. And the person who he sent me to, um, was great about reflecting the first three sessions. He just wanted me to talk about who, like my life, what I had done and what, what influenced me growing up. And, and then when he reflected on me and he said, you know, your whole life has been defined by what you needed to do. And part of that was just the way it's built to become a physician or do sure. whatever. And not so much at all what you wanted to do. So you need to understand that about yourself and start doing what you want, which is easier said than done and, and a luxury in
0: many places. Right. Well, and then you also have to figure out what that is.
1: Yes. It started with small things, mm-hmm. like saying no to something I didn't want to go to and not mm-hmm. feeling guilty about it. Like I had to give myself permission so I didn't feel bad about it, um, which was hard initially. Um, but... It got easier. It felt good after a while to say no and sorry I can't do this or I'm not able to do this or I'm not interested in doing this. Mm -hmm. Um, Think of me next time or, you know, have a good time without me. Sure. And that's been a good thing. But it's easy to slip back. The busier you get, the more you live in that box one, the less you can focus on this. So I keep trying to pull myself back um, and ask again, am I really doing what I want to be doing, or is this just more pain than it's worth in the short time we have in the, uh, on this planet? So, I don't know. We're getting pretty philosophical here, Nick. It's good.
0: I love it. I love it.
1: Um, I wish I could write lyrics like you, because then I could <laughs> put it into song and express
0: myself poetically. Well, I guess everybody has their ways to get it out, right? Yours might be writing your book... And writing the article you always seemed and more like
1: mature that. though. That you had boom. more vision and perspective and like you did. You sort of rode the wave of what was going on under underneath the water, it seemed to me. Is is that you had that perspective in life that I didn't have until years later. It seemed to me. From an outsider's point right. of view.
0: What do you think that is? Is That's that true? Is that the way you'd look at it? I'd have to think about that. Um I think it was probably under-informed, but I think that... Wow, great question. I think that I had... um, I think I was thinking about a certain picture or a certain... Uh, I wouldn't say it was long-term thinking because in a lot of ways I wasn't planning. I wasn't breaking down the compo- component steps to get somewhere. But I was definitely f- thinking in some ways about uh, does this fit in with my sort of bigger picture of me or of life? Of,
1: yeah. Well, so I didn't, stuff. But I I didn't
0: think- do that. I
1: couldn't do that. I didn't – it's not that I chose not to. Right. I didn't have the perspective at all. But I knew that you did. Well. <laughs> I mean, I, envy I don't that. know if I was right or anything like that I'm, either. I'm just but, telling you my observation yeah. from high school on. So whatever's gone on under the under the water, it seemed to me that you were
0: surfing it pretty well. Oh, thanks. I don't know. I'm going to think about that. That's a really, that's, you know, the other thing I've thought about a bunch of times is when I think about things like this is this sort of, What must be the unreliability of my own memories, especially of myself, you know, for me to say I was this kind of kid. Like there's probably a few things that are accurate, but there's probably a bunch of stuff where I have a terrible assessment, either because of just the um, amount of elapsed time is a factor, but also just to be able to put yourself back where you were, I think, is, is not easy.
1: No, it's definitely not. I just had uh, a birthday, and um, I don't make a big deal about mm-hmm. birthdays. But there was a lot of nice comments on Facebook, and of course, people say nice things. But when people reflect back on it, people who say, "I, you know, I since grade school, I knew you were going to be," sure, I find that so hard to believe. Right. I, I certainly believe that our personalities can be set pretty early, and it right. becomes obvious. But I, when I think back to those times, it's, it's rough <laughs> it's hard for me to understand how these very nice uh, adult friends of mine now think back that way about me unless they're just trying to be nice on my birthday
0: um but it's really interesting how we have our, the views we have of ourselves mm-hmm. well and it's then of course because of the way things played out it's easier for people to say well, of course it was going to play out this way because it has but right I true I imagine a lot of that's true I mean I find you to be you know essentially the same person that I've known for 35 years right and that's a, I
1: mean in some ways that's comforting and thing. in other ways I'm like shit
0: <laughs> yeah not to keep you in a box or anything like that but.
1: just in the sense that I'm trying to have some personal growth and development but yes I, I get it and like I said you know some of that pathology is what makes me a good doctor Mm-hmm. it's just the way it is yeah
0: Love it. Um I would like to do this again sometime. I feel like I have like a hundred more things we could talk about. Yeah, this was great.
1: Maybe you should send a copy of it to my therapist. I'd be happy to. Well he we can, we can get him to download it from there. Actually account. I think I forced him into early retirement. He retired last year.
0: It's probably not you that you're
1: probably not the straw that uh, that broke it. It might have been. Don't take that on yourself. No, this is really a, a luxury. And, of course, our friendship goes back so many years. This is really a nice way to sort of punctuate
0: it. I, yeah. l- I appreciate it. It's well, it's my pleasure. Thank you for doing it. It's, um, right, you're like the same sweet, beautiful, interesting guy that I've always known and and – Whatever changes have happened within that framework, that's that's always there, and I love you, and I'm, I'm glad you. you did this. Well, so, you know, the feeling do is very again. mutual, as I've told you over the years. Thanks, man. All right, we'll uh, we'll do it again. David Rubin, thanks for being on. What else? My pleasure. <laughs> Thanks again for listening to What Else? We'll be back with another episode soon, I hope. Thanks for listening.